Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org. All of Ruth chapter 3 this morning. Then Pastor Matt will be preaching for us. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I, need, should I not seek rest for you, that it, may, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz a relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. She lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment that you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For, she, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn, out, learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. Peace be with you. So, in case you're visiting or you're jumping into the story, just to remind you, um, the story began, the book of Ruth began with a couple, Naomi and her husband Elimelech, and they had two sons, and uh, they were in hard times, and famine had struck them, and they moved out uh, to a foreign land, uh, Moab and where things didn't get any better for them. Um, and eventually, tragedy struck. Uh, Alimelech dies in the process of all of this. The two sons had been married to Moabite women, that's Orpah and Ruth, and then the sons die as well. 
and Naomi is widowed, and um, Orpah, the other, the daughter-in-law, goes back home to her family. Ruth clings and stays with Naomi, and they head back to Bethlehem because they hear that there's bread, and they hear that God has visited Bethlehem. And so they head back in, and they're working, and they're poor, and they're widowed, and they're doing that an entire harvest season. And that's where you picked up on at that point in time, is they have now worked an entire season, um, the barley season, the harvest season in Bethlehem, but things, you know, are still troubling and hard for them. As we said in our uh, liturgy um, this week, uh, we speak of Christian joy, Advent joy. Uh, Katie has been doing a wonderful job of kind of bringing it out and, and speaking to it. And joy is, is a welcome topic right now because honestly, in part, this time of year, there's plenty of darkness, you know? Um, last night I pulled up, uh, I always usually come here to spend a little time thinking, praying, working, writing some more. Came up here uh, late last night and as I pulled at the top of the hill, there was a, a, a coyote uh, right in front of me, in front of my car with a busted up leg and he hobbled off um, in front of me in the darkness, and I thought, yeah, that's kind of how Advent feels sometimes. It's just dark and damaged and broken sometimes. We all feel some of that in our families, and our friendships, maybe in your job, in your marriage, maybe your body. Uh, this time of year is supposed to be filled with joy, but sometimes it's not, and I recognize that, and as a pastor, and one of the pastors, I can assure you that we have our fair share of suffering happening in our church. I'm not aware of all of it, but I'm aware of some of it. It's difficult. All that being said, the Bible's really intentional about telling us there's, there's a kind of current or past joy and future joy that you can borrow from uh, that we are meant to nurture, like we're meant to experience and feel. Um, and we think about that, 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 that in many ways joy is nurtured by the work of anticipation. And so Jesus is quite direct with us on this issue of joy. You know, C.S. Lewis said that joy is the serious business of heaven. And uh, Miss Katie brought some of these uh, texts out that Jesus gives us that are, that are really powerful. Um, Jesus spoke quite clearly on the topic of joy in his last moments on his, in his earthly life. He, John 16, 22, he says, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And that same night in the garden, you know, Jesus is praying in his last hours, John 17, 13. Jesus lifts up his prayers and his people and his disciples to the heavenly Father. And he says, but now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world, that they may, they being the disciples and you are one of them, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So, so joy is very possible for you. Like, you know what I mean? If you sit here and you're like, I don't feel any joy. I get it, brother, I get it, sister, like, but it is very possible for you. I think that that's the first thing we have to say on the outset. Um, in, any, in any set of circumstances, joy is possible for you. And, um, and mind you, in these texts that I just read here in John 16 and 17, Jesus is aware of who he's talking to. You know what I mean? You have to keep that in your mind. Like Jesus knows when he's praying for his disciples and he's telling his disciples about the joy that they are meant to have, he knows that these are men that will be persecuted and killed. You know what I mean? It's not like he's not aware. 
So joy is possible. It's real. It's out there. No matter the suffering that we will face, and suffering is inevitable, um, I think in many ways that's why joy is spoken of so much in the New Testament. And so, um, you know, Eugene Peterson, uh, the late Eugene Peterson said this, joy is what God gives, not what we work up. The joy that develops in the Christian way of discipleship is an overflow of spirits that comes from feeling good, not about yourself, <laughs> amen, <laughs> but about God. We find that His ways are dependable, His promises are sure. So um, I, I say all this, I want to set this up this way. I, I, I want to be really clear, as clear as I can be on the topic of joy this morning, that as we explored in the book of Ruth, realize something, Christian joy is not something you conjure up on your own. Okay? That's a plastic smile, it doesn't work. You know what I mean? Self-help books on the topic of joy tread dangerous, they tread dangerous ground in my opinion when they put all the emphasis on you. And the fact that if you want joy, you just need to do some harder work on yourself and your, and your you know, the, the disciplines in your life. You know, Paul says, and we read it earlier, where we mentioned it earlier, Paul says in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, that joy is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, stop and think about this for a moment. Don't miss the precise language of that. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are fruit of the Spirit, not fruit of your really hard work. It's the fruit of the Spirit. So, Paul is saying something really profound, and that is that joy is a consequence. It's a, it's a gift of growth in your life. When you understand, as you begin to understand, and you begin to cherish the freedom and the love of the real gospel. When the real gospel of life and freedom and forgiveness, when it penetrates you deeply, you, as a consequence, start to get joy. So, we, the Bible is really clear. I want to I also be clear about this. The Bible tells us to compel ourselves, right? Like, don't wait until you feel right about it. It compels us to be generous, to serve, to pray, even to rejoice, you know, to sing songs in and out of season. You know, like, show up even when you don't feel like it. Sing and pray and give and serve and do these things. But we are called to do these in and out of joyful feelings, in the hopes that God changes the constitution of our insides. That's the hope. I can't change my insides. God can. It's why Paul expresses his desires in this way. This is Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing. God does the filling. Right Now, let me sound like I'm almost going to contradict myself. It doesn't mean you do nothing. All right? I'm not calling us to an idle kind of discipleship. There is something that you can and should do. So you've got to think of joy as a gift you put 
um, the, jo the joy that you gift as you put yourself in a position to receive and to look to God to provide. It's like uh, houseplants, and, and, you know, it's like my houseplants that I nurture and I cherish. It's one of these little hobbies that I have. I like growing things. Well, the thing about it is, is I can't make things grow. What I can do is put them in a position to receive light. Friends, your, your life and your joy is very much the same way. So when you think about joy this week, just think about my houseplants and what I'm doing with them, right? I can't make them grow. All I can do is put them in front of windows. I can make sure that they have water. And then God does this organic thing that he does that I try to understand, but I can't fully understand. And my heart is so similar to that. I put myself in positions and say, please, God, do something. Just do something that I can't. And I wait on him. But I keep showing up. And so I think that these, these things that we can do are in the, the story, the romance story that you read, right? Right here in our text. If you slow down and reflect a little bit, they're right under our nose, this idea of putting yourself in a position to get joy. And what I would say is, is this, it's just like this, for, for sake of memory for you this morning, it's just an act of trust. That's really what it boils down to, but I will summarize it this way, that if you want to put yourself in a position to receive joy, here's what I would say. Joy, joy means you have to trust that your pride must be confronted and your perception needs to be reimagined, okay? So we're going to be talking about your pride, sorry, wah, wah, it's like... I thought this was going to be about joy. Well, I, that's actually the point that I hope I can make this morning. So we're going to talk about pride, and we're going to talk about your perception of God that needs to be reworked, okay, reimagined. So first, like the issue of pride, look, look, what's going on in this chapter? Anyone want to take a stab at it? I mean, it's strange Bible reading, right? Did you grab this chapter to read to your kids this week? It's weird. I will admit that. Ruth cleans herself up. Some tech translations kind of have that Ruth puts her best clothes on. I don't know if that's really true, but she's poor. Your SV, if you read the ESV, we read the ESV. It says cloak, I think, or something like that. But she puts on some kind of customary garment that expresses she's eligible and interested. And this is all concocted by Naomi, her mother-in-law. And she waits until the end of the night when Boaz is asleep, and she uncovers him. His feet is what it says. It's probably just his lower half. And look, I just think that it's probably to get him cold so that he might wake up. And I say that, and I believe me, friends, I'm not scared of how sometimes the Bible leaves things ambiguous. And this is one chapter there that there is a lot of ambiguity. And Boaz wakes up, he startles, he awakes in his sleep to find a woman laying there next to him, this mystery woman. He asks who she is, and then in verse 9, she says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, you, as the Bible reader, are reading that, and you're going, what is going on? And you're looking down, maybe in your study Bible, and you're going, what does this even mean? Um, I don't know. No, I just, it, I kind of know. I, I did my best to, to, to learn everything I could about this. There's a lot of customary things in here, custom, that honestly, many of the scholars 
are wrestling with. But it basically, the gist of it is this, that Ruth is, this is a way of Ruth saying, please marry me, please commit to me as an act of redemption. Please redeem me. And there are a lot of, like I said, there's a lot of customs and, and we, we're, we, can, we struggle to put it all together perfectly as to what is going on. I picture the author pinning this chapter with a smirk on his face, saying, I'm going to keep their imagination running. What we do know is Naomi has asked Ruth to step out of normal convention, and that is what I want you to be thinking about. Why does she go about it this way? I don't know. Why the secrecy? Why late at night? Why the awkwardness of it? Why is she doing all the initiating? I don't know. I have no idea. It makes our imagination run. But the deeper point here is that Ruth, hear me, Ruth is willing willing to put herself in a calculated but vulnerable position. And this is part of what I mean when I say confronting your pride. Like, you're going to have to trust the process that comes with confronting your pride if you think you're going to have joy in your life. I say calculated because Naomi and Ruth have plenty of evidence that would suggest that Boaz is an honorable guy and he's not going to take advantage of this situation. But it's still risky. And I'm sure that Ruth, it's conjecture, but I'm sure that Ruth never saw, her, saw herself or her life. You know, when she looked out at her life, she never saw herself as being one who was doing all of this initiating or taking plans and orders from her mother-in-law on how to get matched up. And this is a standout feature of Ruth throughout the whole story. She's just this person that doesn't let her pride get in the way. She's a standout feature of someone who's so humble throughout the storyline. Suffering and humiliation have a way of making this discipline easier in your life. Like, what, you try to tackle your pride issues and it's very difficult. It takes a lot of discipline. But the people that, what I would say this, is the people that are able to generate a lot of humility in their life, well, man, it's just low-hanging fruit because they are beat down. And they just don't have a lot of laurels to rest on. That's been my experience. And Ruth has had plenty of suffering and humiliation, which I think is why she's such a standout feature of someone who does not let her pride get in the way. And so when, you know, when Ruth reveals herself to Boaz... She says, your translation probably says servant. The actual word there means handmaid. She calls herself a handmaid. I'm your handmaid. It's the same word also for like slave. I mean, that's how low she always positions herself. My point here is just that had Ruth been reluctant um, and let her ego get in the way of this of things throughout this storyline and things we don't know but they could have been very different for Ruth and you know when you think over her life her plans were radically reworked she didn't see herself losing a husband at a young age she doesn't see herself having to live in poverty she doesn't see herself having to live in a foreign land away from her family there's so many things that were thrust upon her that were not I'm sure part of her plan as well as timing God's timing never aligned with Ruth's timing. 
But Ruth lowers herself over and over again. One thing suffering and hardships will inevitably do to you is lead you down into a place of feeling weak and broken. You know what I mean? Whether it's because of your sin or somebody else's sin or nobody's sin, then it's just, you know, you get sick or whatever, something horrible and hard happens. When you get there, when you get to that place because of a family situation, a work situation, a marriage situation, a health situation, when you get to that place of feeling weak, you're feeling broken, you're feeling like you can't muster it up, you can't, you feel like this is embarrassing, you feel like whatever, one of those kinds of things, and we've all had those moments, and you might be in one right now, when you get there, you have choices. You, one of those is you can hide, right? You can, you can sink in bitterness. You can pretend and double down on manufacturing the self-image that you've been doing since you were a teenager. That kind of comes naturally for you. Like you'll, you'll, you'll spend time with family around this Christmas, right? Some, a lot of you. And you'll be shocked at how fast you go back to being 12 again. Won't you? You'll go home after the trip and you'll be like, I, I still do that. You just may not say it out loud, but you're thinking about it in your head. Because that stuff is just so deep in us. So you can do those things. You can get bitter. You can hide, isolate. A lot of people isolate when the hardships come on. You can blame shift. You know? It's easier to just talk about all the awful things that these people are doing to me. And we have suffering sometimes from other people. Or... You can do things, you can ask questions of yourself. Like, where is my ego at right now? And where is it in the way? Where is my attachment to looking like a person who has things perfectly put together? Where is that attachment showing up right now? In this job situation, in this marriage, in this, with my kids, whatever it is. Where is all of that operating? And friends, don't hear me the wrong way because I know many, many of you suffer and it's not your fault. Like it's not, your suffering is not the result of being, you know, your own sin and God is punishing you. That doesn't mean that there's not invitations for us to address pride. And I say this with the utmost sensitivity. Do you realize that you have an entire book in your Bible like Job who suffers immensely? And we are told up front that that suffering is not because of his sin. It's a mystery. But you realize that as you unpack the rest of that whole book, Job is being forced to confront what? His own pride. There's still an invitation for you to grow. If God wants to, if his mission in your life is to conform you into the image of the Son, which is what the Bible says, is he wants to do to you then he will hurt you in ways, purposely, to shape you and form you into the sun, which means you are going to have to confront parts of yourself that are really difficult, really embarrassing. I mean, think about this. It's, it's, it's Christmas next weekend, right? I mean, what is Christmas about? I mean, really, it's the announcement of a cosmic gift, which is Jesus condescending for us. But it's the sick, Jesus says, that he's coming for. Not the well. Not the healthy. It's the sick. 
It's the screw-ups, the failures. Jesus is a gift to the people not measuring up and feeling really desperate about it. And therefore, he's a threat to anyone who wants to cling to their moralism and thinking that somehow they've got the chops to impress God. He's a threat to all of those people. But the joy of that gift only begins to grow in people who really embrace that the only thing in the way of their redemption is their persistent ego that demands that they never look vulnerable, weak, broken, clueless. (laughs) I have no idea what I'm doing in my life. Weak, failed. My kids just this weekend watched this movie, The Chronicles of Christmas, I think is what it's called. They love that stupid movie. And it's, listen, it's, it's just, God love him. I, you know, Kurt Russell stars in it. And I like Kurt Russell. But you know what? This, listen, the message, let me, let me set it up for you a little bit. For those of you who are like, what is he talking about? So, you know, uh, Kurt Russell's Santa. And these two teenage kids, they're having a rough go of it. And Santa's out Christmas Eve doing his work, and they sneak onto the sleigh. Santa doesn't know it. Santa gets spooked when he sees the kids in the back of the sleigh. He wrecks the sleigh. The whole Christmas night is now potentially hijacked by these two teenage kids. And he's talking about how you know, this could really be a disaster because all the kids in the world won't get presents. And the teenage boy speaks up, and he's like, who really cares, Santa, if a few brats don't get presents? And then Kurt Russell goes off on the spirit of Christmas. And he says, Christmas reminds people of how good they can be. That is so wrong. You know? In my house, that, my kids are watching us, and they're smiling. And I'm like, this is blasphemy! You know, I mean, I'm angry. They might as well have been watching a rated R movie for me. I was angry. The lie of the logic can't be understated. Christmas reminds people of how bad they are. But at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's the message of Christmas. While we were still weak, is what Romans 5 says. Christ died for the ungodly. So joy will be blocked in the person that is determined to protect that safer image that you want to run back to. So trust the process is all I'm trying to say in this first part of the sentence. Trust the process of coming undone. When you feel yourself coming undone, I get it. It's scary. It's disorienting. But trust the process of it. It's very upside down in the kingdom of heaven. If you want to go up, you have to go down. Trust the path of looking weak, even when it's scary. Learn to admit when your ego has been in the way. Go to those places. That sets you on the course of letting God fill you with himself in his joy. Okay, but so what about this perception piece? And what I want to say about this perception piece and having it reimagined is this, this, this is why, this is in part the reason why you can do all of this pride confronting, okay? Something unexpected happens in the midst of this late night romantic rendezvous, right? You get informed that there's another kinsman redeemer closer in the family connection to Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech, than Boaz. Now, 
If you were here last week, I briefly explained what that meant in their culture. A kinsman redeemer was a person who had the right to buy the ancestral land of the deceased person. But to do so, you not only needed the family connection, you needed the money to buy the land, but you also needed to be willing to marry the widowed daughter-in-law, which in this case is Ruth. So Boaz knows that there's a man closer in connection than him. He brings this up. And so Boaz will need to go and have a conversation with that man. That's chapter 4. And he wants, he'll have to go see if he wants the land and to buy this back, and he wants to marry Ruth. So Ruth will need to wait again. And things aren't fully settled yet. But here's the thing. They don't wait, Ruth doesn't wait to get to chapter 4 without good news. Because notice Boaz's response. This is verse 10 and 11. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. Don't be afraid. I'll do all that you ask. I'm going to do it. And then he encourages her with these words in verse 13. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will. I lie down until the morning. Now, there is no marriage in chapter 3, as you said, as you, as you read. So for Ruth, the ultimate joy of full redemption still remains to be played out. Like we got to get to that next week. And so Ruth leaves the threshing floor, still widowed, still waiting. But that doesn't mean that she leaves empty-handed, does it? And I'm not referring to the grain that Boaz gives her. That's not what I'm referring to. Ruth doesn't leave the threshing floor empty-handed because here's the thing. Ruth doesn't know exactly how this is going to work out, but she does know something. She knows Boaz's determination, and she knows Boaz's disposition. That's what she knows. That's the good news that she has. There isn't a hint in Boaz's words, and I looked hard for them. There isn't a hint in Boaz's words of obligation. There isn't a whiff of annoyance. There isn't a shred of reluctance in Boaz. Now, spoiler alert, in case you do not know the book of Ruth, the other closer redeemer can redeem Ruth. He can, legally, but he won't want to. But, so although the other guy may not want Ruth, there is one who does want Ruth, and that's Boaz. He's excited about the opportunity. And that church, you know, is the wonderful news that God is kind of weaving into the story here in chapter 3. Now, I want you to do some thinking, okay? I'm rounding third here, but I need you to do some thinking, so stay with me. You've got to do some comparing and some applying to see how this fits in your life. If Boaz is a stand-in for God, which in this chapter, I think, is a good way to look at it and understand it. If he is the stand-in for what God is like, what his character is like, what his, what his methods are, what, and what he's doing for us, which, you know, like I said, I think Boaz is, what are then you encouraged to hear in this? I don't think it's terribly difficult to tell people 
and to get them to even believe that the Bible is primarily a story about God sending his son to pay the penalty for our sin so that we can be forgiven and he can redeem us from evil and death. I actually don't think it's that difficult to convince a lot of people that that is what God is doing. But, and please hear me, but, the truth I think that is really difficult to get impressed into people's hearts is how much he delights in doing it. Is Jesus holy and perfect? Absolutely. Is Jesus angered by evil and hates, does he hate wrongdoing? Absolutely. The Bible clearly tells us that. But as Dan, uh, Dane Ortland wrote, the dominant note left ringing in our ears after reading the Gospels, the most vivid and arresting element of the portrait is the way the Holy Son of God moves toward, touches, heals, embraces, and forgives those who least deserve it, yet truly desire it. You know, in Luke 15, you, you start to see Jesus is in a lot of trouble. And the religious rulers of the day are, 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 are fed up with him. And I know you're, you'll, you'll love, a lot of us love Luke 15, rightfully so. The prodigal son story is in there. But at the very beginning of it, is when Luke starts getting going, in verse 2, it says, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Talking about Jesus. The word receives can mean look forward to. Jesus looked forward to hanging out with people that everyone else thought was disgusting. And in response to their grumbling, Jesus tells that his famous little story that many of you know about the shepherd, this, this shepherd guy who's got a hundred sheep, right? And one of them gets lost. And he, and, he, and he goes out, right? He leaves the 99. And this is something people are like, I love this verse. Thank you, pastor. And I know it is a great verse. It's a wonderful verse. So the, you know, the man, the shepherd goes out, leaves the night, and goes out for the one, then he carries it back. And when he gets back, he throws a party with his friends, and he's like, I got the sheep, right? And we, we love that text, and we should love that text. Do you, know, do you remember what he says next, right after that? Bible quiz, verse 7, Jesus says, Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than... Then, joy that over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, you sit and think about that for a minute. When we change our mind about God, which is what this word repent, metanoia, means. When we change our mind about God and who he is and what he's like and how much he loves us, and we change our mind about our own life and we realize, man, I am, I'm the problem. I'm the problem. And when we start to have that shift in our mind, the heavens throw parties. God and his angels aren't saying, when you do this work of saying, you know what, I got issues. This is embarrassing and humiliating, but I got issues. God in heaven, you know, and, and his angels aren't saying, well, yeah, man, yeah, it's okay, you're forgiven. This is what we do. That's not what they're saying. They're not saying, well, you know, it's, it's about time. It's about time you came around. 
the response to anyone owning their brokenness is not, well, well, you're forgiven, but let's see how this week goes. Let's see this week when you go back to work. Let's see this week when you get on the computer tonight. Let's see how you handle your money this month. Because we know what you're going to do. That's not, that's not what the text is saying. Anytime we come to him in our brokenness and say, I cannot do this. If I am taking Jesus at his word correctly, he's telling us that he and the rest of heaven get more joy by broken people telling him about their broken inabilities than loads of people who seem by their own standards to be doing it just right. So Jesus can redeem, but doesn't have to. But Jesus does redeem and takes the most joy in doing so. And Hebrews 12, verse 2, tells us to look at Jesus, right? And it says, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, this is not saying that Jesus took joy in the cross. Read it again. That's not what it's saying. The cross was awful. It was terrifying, humiliating, and excruciating. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus endured the awfulness because of the joy he anticipated in getting you. And the fact that he's going to rescue you. I'm going to go through the absolute worst because I can't wait to have the joy of raising up him and her. So there are many things I can do, but don't have to do and refuse to do. <laughs> there are things I can do, don't have to do, but will do, albeit begrudgingly, right? There's some cleaning chores like that. There are some things I can do, don't have to do, but always will do because it brings me so much joy in doing so. One of those is when my kids screw up royally and they come to me and they say, I'm sorry, Dad. Forgive me. Easiest conversation of the week for me because nothing brings me more joy. Doesn't happen very often. Right? Why would you think Jesus is any different? He's not. He's far better than that. You know, there's a funny little story about Martin Luther and his close friend, Philip Melanchthon. Philip was the author of the Augsburg Confession. Philip was reportedly a disciplined, cool-tempered man, very monkish. One day, Luther lost patience with Melanchthon's virtuous reserve, and he reportedly yelled at him. And he yelled this, For heaven's sake, why don't you go out and sin a little? God deserves to have something to forgive you for. I'm not telling you to go out and sin a little bit. What I'm saying is, for heaven's sake, you already do. And the reality is, <laughs> and I know that this sounds very opposite, but every sin, every struggle, every prideful or humiliating moment is an invitation to return to Jesus, looking for help, looking for love, looking for redemption. And every return that you make is one that gives him joy.
every time. He, you're never going to exhaust him in it. His joy overflows into you when you do it. And so, it's about confession and about reliance. And so as we come to the table, remember this, that this bread is Christ's body that is broken for you. And this cup of wine is His blood, represents His blood that is shed for you. And so as you take time to think and to pray and to reflect, what you're doing is you're giving thanks that you have a God that, you are will, that he says, come throw your messy, messiness onto me. I love receiving your messiness so that I might change the constitution of your insides. And so before you come forward, you know, if you're a Christian, you're invited to this table or to this table to take part. If that's, you're not a Christian, you're just wrestling, man, I love that you're here. And the cup that, or the table isn't for you yet, but if you come to Jesus and you say, Jesus, you are Lord, then it will be, all right? But as you get ready to pray, let me just leave you with this. I'll tell you a little secret about the church and the people that make it up, because pastors have a lot of secrets about people. We just do. From my perspective, behind all the smiles, the singing, and the serving, most people don't feel like they're very good at the Christian life. Please hear me say that. I'm telling you, most people don't feel like they're doing a very good job of it. We have plenty of gossip, defensiveness, and a nervous, frantic doing that proves I'm right. But ironically, it's the inadequacy that sets you up for joy. It's your inadequacy if and only if, if you let Jesus do what he came to do, which is to receive sinners. So let him do it. Bring your brokenness to him this morning. Let us pray. Father, I pray that we turn from evil and turn to you. That we seek peace and we pursue it. When your word says that when we seek you, when we ask, when we lay our sins before you, that you will receive us because of the work that you've done in your son. And so we pray that we as a church do that this morning. Our souls praise you and our souls also ache because of the sins and the sufferings that we have. Redeem us, O Lord, from the, the works of darkness and from evil. Return us back to you and bring us close to you and fill us up with joy this morning in this Christmas season. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org.